We read a verse from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our Father, we're so grateful that you are our strength. We know that in our flesh there dwells no good thing. Scripture tells us that. And Lord, this is difficult for us to make known in a world, especially in this country today, where uh, our society is shot through with feel-good kind of focus and, and with a sense that nothing is anybody's fault. It's always somebody else's fault no matter what happens. And yet, Father, from Scripture we know that we stand alone before the true and the living God and we will answer for the life we lived regardless of other factors. And so, Father, we just pray that you help us to constantly remember that you are our strength, that you are our portion, you are our high tower, you're the one who leads us and that we truly will dwell in that strength. Father, bless today, this hour. Guide us in our study of this, your word. And I pray that in every way you will be glorified. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the second book of Samuel, the third chapter, and I will read at verse 17. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may be king over all your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And behold, the servants of David and Joab <coughs> came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner <coughs> came to you. Why then have you sent him away, and he is already gone? You know, Abner the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you, and to learn of your going out and your coming in, and to find out all that you are doing. In this uh, chapter, the remaining verses of this chapter, we see a profound contrast a contrast between the man, David, the king that uh, we are studying here, who is patient and faithful. And on the other hand, we see Joab, who is impetuous and self-willed. And, and I think these two give us a real contrast uh, between the, the, the spiritual man and the fleshly man, and how we ought to see from that contrast what it means to live as God has ordained us to live. There is no doubt that Abner came to David in order to insinuate himself into David's favor. Abner had met with the elders of Israel to talk with them about the conditions that were existing at that time. 
and he was urging them to go ahead and choose David as their king. Now, the elders may have been living in or near Maanaim at that time because that was where Ishbosheth was headquartered, and, and that's sort of the capital of the kingdom. And uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, this map shows Maanaim a little far to the, further to the east than most scholars place it right about in there. But anyway, it's, in the, it's along the book, uh, Brook Jabbok there. It's possible, of course, that more time passes in this passage than, than we are seeing, and that Abner actually had sent out a word throughout Israel saying, gather to me because I have a discussion uh, that I want to carry on with you. But what, whatever the case might be, Abner is referring here when he says to them, why don't you go ahead and make David king as you had already thought of doing. He is making that reference because apparently before he set forth Ishbosheth, to claim the kingship. Many of the elders in Israel had already decided, well, uh, Saul's dead, so let's go ahead and make David king. But they had failed to do it because they were intimidated by Abner. Abner was a powerful warrior. He was the commander-in-chief of the forces of Israel. And if he decides he's going to elevate Ishbosheth, I think most of the elders of Israel were unwilling to challenge him, even though in their hearts they had already decided that, that David should probably succeed, even as God had ordained. Now Abner is urging them to do what many of them had thought to do in the first place. Go ahead and make David king. And in the process, you'll notice there in the passage that we read, he invokes the name of the Lord. He, he claims that the Lord said, and this is what Abner said specifically, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistine and from the hand of all their enemies. But if you look through, <laughs> the passages of Scripture here, you will not find that statement. You will not find a statement wherein God said, by the hand of David, I will save Israel from the Philistines. I think what Abner was doing was simply making a logical deduction because God had said, and it's recorded in 1 Samuel, that he anointed, he asked Samuel to anoint Saul, that Saul might save Israel from the Philistines and all of the enemies of Israel. Saul had failed to do that. So God anointed David to be Saul's successor. Thereby, the deduction is that David would inherit the promise and the command that God had given to Saul. Therefore, David was commanded also and promised that he would be able to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Although you won't find those words specifically in Scripture, that is, of course, the logical deduction which Abner was probably referring to. On his way to Hebron, again, Hebron is down here. This is where we're focused right now. David will be king here for seven and a half years. Hebron. If you ever have been to Hebron, you'd say, I don't think I'd want to be king there, especially now. <laughs> Things are pretty tumultuous there in, in Hebron today. Uh, so what we have is Abner uh, coming down from Manaim, uh, stopping for a period of time in Benjamin, and then going on down to Hebron here to meet with David. So on his way, after he has gotten the Israelite elders to agree that, yes, David should be their king, he stops in Benjamin on the way to talk to the men, the leaders of Benjamin specifically. Now, why would he make it a point to, to talk with the Benjamites? Well, you all certainly remember that Saul was a Benjamite. Abner is a Benjamite. Ishbosheth is a Benjamite. 
And so there, this is the tribe that profited most from Saul being king. Most of those who were placed in high positions in Saul's government were Benjamites. Many of the uh, upper echelon of the command of his army were Benjamites. And so they had the most to lose, you might say, if the kingship was transferred to David. But it is also interesting that if you go to 1 Chronicles, that in 1 Chronicles it names several Benjamites who had come and joined David's force. So not all the men of Benjamin were just, you know, gung-ho happy that Saul was their king. There were some rebels in the crowd. Apparently the Benjamites consented and said, yes, we, we agree with you, Abner. Probably David ought to be made king because this man Ishbosheth isn't going to cut it. And so what we have is Abner going down to Hebron, and we, we assume that all have agreed because he says, uh, it, it is said that when he arrives and sees David, that all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin, he proclaimed to David. And so it seems that kind of a general sense of agreement has, has been established here by Abner. We're told in this passage that he arrived with 20 men in Hebron. And he came to make a covenant. In verse 12 of this third chapter, Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand will be with you to bring all Israel over to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing, namely that you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. Well, Abner had already fulfilled that piece of it. Michael had been delivered. And so now he was coming to make a covenant. This is a covenant of reconciliation. Reconciliation between the house of Saul and the house of David. A covenant whereby all of Israel is agreeing to replace the house of Saul with the house of David. David's response is to honor Abner. David's response is to, to set this man who is a captain in Israel, the commander of the forces of Israel, in a place of honor, and to seal the covenant with a feast. This was a very common practice in the Old Testament, to seal a covenant with a feast. At the high point of the festivities, everything is going well, the party is going on, and and uh, David is honoring Abner, and Abner is honoring David. Right at the high point, it seems that Abner asked permission to leave so that he might go gather all of Israel together, that they might all come and elevate David as king. Think of what must have been going through David's mind here. David had been chased by Saul all over the countryside, and years had passed. Saul is dead. And now the, the promise of God and the anointing that had been upon David should come to fruition. And yet in the midst of it, we discover Abner raising up a rival and, and the ten northern tribes going with Ishbosheth and only Judah really anointing with the tribe of Simeon that was more or less absorbed into Judah, anointing David as king over Israel, uh, over, over Judah. And, and you know, if you were in David's place, you could say, oh Lord, how long? I've been waiting all these years. Your promise is not fulfilled. What is going on? But what we find instead here is a man who is, I think he was filled with amazement and he was filled with joy because he had done nothing to try to force the issue. 
David didn't say, all right, Saul's dead. You're all going to come and anoint me king or I'm going to have a crusade against you all. No, he didn't say that. He, made, he, he simply accepted what uh, anointing did come along with him. And he was patient. He was faithful. And now I think he's saying, wow, this is how God does it. This is how God works. I think we, in our natural flesh, I know I am as guilty of this as anyone, when we know something should happen, rather than waiting for the Lord's timing and, and letting the, the Lord bring it about, the Lord fulfill it, we want to force it. Let's, let's, let's do something. Let's make it happen. Oh, that's such a temptation, I think, that we face. God wants us to learn faith and patience and to carry on in prayer. And that's how he brings about his will. And that's how he brings about good things into our lives. As we try to make them happen, we often create a situation just as Joab created a situation. Let me read a verse, a passage that you know so well, but I think sometimes it, it pays for us to be reminded of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for a few things. Oh, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Is that easy? That is hard. We, by nature, are anxious people, always worrying and fretting about the future and what's going to happen next. The scripture says to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, not, you know, biting their nails while we're being non-anxious, you know. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. And uh, it, it isn't our nature to avail ourselves of that. It's really hard. But David is a good example of this. I'm sure, sure that within him he had thoughts, and, and sometimes I'm sure he prayed the prayer, Oh, Lord, how long will it be before the kingdom is mine? But, but he didn't do anything to force it. And he waits patiently to see what God will do. Joab is just the opposite. Joab can't wait till God does something to Abner. He is going to do it himself. I think Abner planned this visit so that he'd be there when Joab was not there. Because he and Joab were not on very good terms for the reasons that we read about in the passage before. It would have been easy for him to know whether Joab was there or not. I mean, spies were everywhere. Just to have some people in, in Hebron who would say, oh, send out the word, Joab and a, and a group of the, David's men have gone out on a military expedition. They probably won't be back for a week or, you know, whatever was the time frame. And so Abner planned his visit so that he would arrive when his arch enemy is gone. Battle of the Pool of Gibeon and the killing of Asahel, Joab's youngest brother, had put Abner in a very, very precarious position vis-a-vis -vis Joab. Joab hated him. Joab was looking for any opportunity to destroy him. 
And so he knew that if he were to arrive and Joab was there, Joab would do everything he could to undercut him, which, of course, we read in the passage he will do when he does arrive. He doesn't want Abner to, to be able to sway David in any sense of the word. Josephus, the first century historian, even goes so far to say that he believed that Joab feared that Abner might be elevated to replace him as commander of David's forces. Now, you know, David seems to imply that wouldn't happen, but you never can tell, especially when we discover the, the character and nature of Joab as it will show up uh, in this passage. Well, whatever was the case, when Joab did return from the raid against Israel's enemies, and we're not told where they raided. All we're told is they made a raid and they brought back a lot of plunder. When he arrived and he discovered that David had made a covenant with Abner, he not only that, he had feasted Abner, and he had sent Abner away in shalom, in peace. Oh, Abner, Joab, went ballistic. <laughs> he went straight to David, and he angrily questioned his sanity. David, have you totally lost all your marbles? Declaring Abner has no intention of bringing Israel to submit to you. The only reason he came was to spy out the camp, find out how strong we are, discover a way by which he can attack Hebron, surround it, and, and destroy you. Joab was David's nephew, and he seemed to think, they had the right to question David's judgment and to chew him out if he felt it was warranted. Well, we're going to discover that this is not the last time that Joab will push it right to the edge of insubordination, and in some cases we might see true insubordination. Verse 26 of 2 Samuel 3. When Joab came out from David... He sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak to him privately, and there he struck him in the belly, so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on his father's house. And may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge, one who is a leper, one who takes hold of a distaff, that's a crutch, or who falls by the sword or who, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Joab was very, very angry. And so, without David's knowledge, he decided to take matters into his whole own hands. See the contrast? David patiently waiting for the Lord to accomplish his will, for the Lord to bring the kingdom to him in the Lord's time. And Joab over here is not going to wait for anything. He's going to move now, and he's going to move by his own wisdom. He sent messengers after Abner to bring him back. Now, we don't know exactly where the well of Sirah was, but many believe that it was just a very, very short distance north of Hebron. So he hadn't gone very far. 
Apparently he had left, asked David's leave, he had gone and he'd gone out outside of the town to, to be kind of in a more secure location and had camped so that he could get a, a, a good start on the next day uh, in his trip to the north. From this passage we can derive a couple of things. First of all, it was probably relatively late in, in the day when Abner left Hebron, but, but not sunset. It was still light when he left and so he camped in order to have a, get a good rest and probably take off at the crack of dawn or even maybe before in order to get probably back close to Mayanim in the next day. And uh, secondly, that Joab must have just missed Abner. I mean, talk about timing. It could be that he asked David in the middle of the, of the feast, uh, David, I'd like to go now because somebody had come in and said, by the way, Abner Joab's coming. <laughs> uh, we, we don't know. It isn't told for us here, but there was a, not a very large time difference between the time Abner left and Joab arrived. It was, I mean, it was very, very fresh. How in the world did Joab get Abner to return? Well, he probably didn't say, the messenger probably didn't say, oh, by the way, Joab has come back and he wants you to come back <laughs> and, and to Hebron. Probably not. Uh, the messenger probably said, oh, by the way, David has something else he wants to say to you, so David would like for you to return and get the message. Some of you may remember that when the Constitutional Convention was held in uh, Philadelphia, that one of the men who had been chosen to attend the Constitutional Convention was a Virginian by the name of Patrick Henry. And, and Patrick Henry uh, said, I am not going to attend the Constitutional Convention because he said, I smell a rat, that he felt like something was going to happen that was untoward. Well, unfortunately, Abner didn't have that perception. Abner didn't smell a rat here. He should have but apparently he didn't. And so Abner does return. And it's very possible he returned alone without his 20-man escort. We, we don't know. It doesn't say. All it does tell us is that it, Joab wasted absolutely no time. As soon as Abner arrived, in the middle of the gateway, he took him aside a little bit to, as if he was going to talk privately with him, and he whipped out a secret weapon. We don't know if it was a sword or just a big dagger or whatever it was. He whipped it out and blah, you know. Right there in public in the middle of the gateway, the entrance to the city where judgment was rendered normally. Joab felt, I guess, that he was rendering judgment. Scripture tells us very, very clearly that Joab did this in order to avenge his brother Asahel. Now, we don't know what exactly Abishai's uh, involvement was here. It doesn't appear that Abishai was actually there at the moment or took place in the actual killing of Joab, but he knew what the plan was and he acquiesced to the plan. And thus it becomes guilt by association, at least in the mind of David. To say that David was upset was, is to put it in very, very mild terms. In all honesty, David had made a covenant with Abner. And now, through Joab's duplicity, Abner has been murdered in the gateway of David's city. In that day and age, if you are under the, the roof or on the property of somebody, you are guaranteed that person's security, that person's protection. And since David was the king and this was his capital by extension, that would have been the whole city of Hebron. And yet in the gateway of that city, Abner is murdered. 
David knew this would look very bad with the elders of Israel because it was Abner who had gone and convinced the elders, yes, we, we, should, we should claim proclaim David. And, and, and then Abner gets murdered for this? Uh, probably not. This, of course, in David's eyes, endangered the whole effort at reunion, at bringing the two groups together under David as their king. Who is really behind this, right? I think as we read the pages of the Old Testament, we read these stories of duplicity and, and assassination and war and all these things, we have to always remember that Satan is going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And certainly he worked on Joab's impetuosity, Joab's unfaithfulness, and used him as his tool here because Satan does not want David to be the ruler of the United Kingdom of Israel because Satan is God's man. I I'm sorry, David is, yeah, right. <laughs> David is God's man, and Satan does not want David on the throne of a united nation. One thing we can say about Satan is he is consistent. He's consistent in his effort to destroy God's people and God's work. And he will use any method possible in order to do that. David knew this could truly sully his reputation. And therefore, he immediately went before the people and proclaimed his innocence in the name of the Lord God. And then he placed the blame where it belongs, squarely on the shoulders of Joab. He went so far as to place the whole blame, the whole guilt on Joab personally. And then he proclaims a triple curse upon Joab's house, the curse of plague, of sword, and famine. That's, that's very, very serious to make such a proclamation. And David felt these words were justified because he felt that God was dishonored that the reunion was put in danger, and that Joab had decided to take vengeance in his own, by his own hand and in his own name. When the scripture makes it very clear, that is solely God's prerogative. Let me read the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where this is proclaimed. It's part of the great song of Moses. In Deuteronomy 32, reading at verse 35, God speaking, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near. The impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining free or bond, he will say, where are their gods? the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their libation. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he. There is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded. It is I who heal. There is no other one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword, my hand will take hold of justice and I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. 
I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance on his adversaries, and will atone for his land and his people. Patience. Faith. That God will work in God's time. He doesn't need us to go out and do it for him. The New Testament, let me just read a couple of verses from the New Testament, which brings it to us in a more clear way. In Romans chapter 12, we read these words, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those are hard words. This is not our nature. Um, and I think most of us can very quickly think back into situations where something happened in our immediate welled up within us immediately was the desire to strike back, right? That, that's, that's the way we are as, as human beings. And yet God says so much the opposite. Don't take vengeance because God will do it in his time. And when he does it, it's done so much better. <laughs> and, and even says to go to the opposite extreme and feed your enemy and give him a drink. I mean, can you imagine Joab going up and saying, oh, Abner, so good to see you here. <laughs> If he gave him a glass of wine, there would have been cyanide in it, you know. Uh, can, can you imagine him doing that? Because had he done that, the vengeance in the long run would have been so much better and so much sweeter because God would have done it in his time. Of course, at the same time, we need to pray for those that are opposed to us because God may save them. You know, it's, it's like, could it be possible that, that God would, would save Saddam Hussein? You know? Muammar Gaddafi? Mullah Omar? Well, most of us probably have sincere doubts that will happen. But is it possible? Yeah. I think so. And that's why I think it's not our place to go out and strike. I'm not talking now about our nation dealing with the, the whole issue. I'm talking about individually, as, as individuals. It's not our place to go out and uh, to seek vengeance because that's jobs, God's job. In this passage, uh, Joab insinuates that his action was in revenge for his brother's death, but that is morally indefensible. Asahel had been killed on the battlefield. He was not assassinated. He was not murdered. He was killed in combat. Abner had killed him in self-defense. That is absolutely clear. And not only that, Abner had twice warned him, back off, Asahel, I don't want to kill you. Go away. Go chase somebody else. And Asahel persevered and died. So that, I mean, that's perfectly, you know, as far as things like this are legitimate, that was perfectly legitimate self-defense. Joab, on the other hand, flat out murders jo uh, Abner here. No warning. No pretense at self-defense, just, you know, right there in public. 
It made Abner look all the more like a mighty warrior, a great man in the land, and made Joab look like a cowardly assassin. The opposite of what Joab, of course, wanted to appear to be. The fact that Abishai, his brother, is not mentioned in the curse seems to indicate that he, although he must have acquiesced because he is kind of impl implicated in other things that are said, but he apparently did not actually participate in the actual killing of Abner. Well, David's response is it's actually totally opposite of what Joab would have expected or would have wanted. David's reaction is truly a godly reaction. I mean, David will actually treat this as if Abner was a great man and that Joab was a total enemy of the state. He will treat it as if Abner was almost like his son. David will so lament over the death of Abner, just as he lamented over the death of Saul. How is David an example to us of giving a cup of cold water to your enemy, of feeding your enemy, of allowing God to take vengeance in his time. When we saw how David had opportunities on two occasions to have killed Saul long before, and he refrained. We, we just have to. I, I've said this before. We, we get this, some of us, may, maybe you don't, but I know some people get it so stuck in their head that David was such a jerk with Bathsheba that he couldn't have done anything very good. <laughs> But, but he was a mighty man of God and a man of powerful example to us all. And so uh, we need to keep that in mind as we look at his life. Well, next week we'll, we'll finish the chapter and we'll move into the fourth chapter. And David will finally be crowned king of all Israel after all these weeks and months.